Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I'm so excited to be able to share today's interview with you that I just did with Scott LaPierre. I'm going to tell you a little bit about him here in a second, and of course you're going to be able to hear it from himself, who he is, and more about his life. But before I do that, I want to let you know about the Growth Initiative. We're talking about it because, as I've said before, this is a time-sensitive program. The fall session is starting in a week and a half, just over a week actually, from when this episode's airing. And I don't want you to miss out on an opportunity to join the other Christian men that are signing up to continue their growth as husbands and fathers and as leaders of their home, leaders in their community, trying to grow their ability to earn and provide for their family, to grow in their health, and to become more effective in all the areas of life that the Bible deems worthy and, and of value and that they see as being worthy and valuable. So again, there are two different times that you can sign up for the calls. All the calls happen on Thursdays. You could do the 7 a.m. Pacific time or the 3 p.m. Pacific time. All the curriculum and the pre-recorded videos you have lifetime access to, but the six live calls are, are what I just said. They're live. So we've got to sign up soon if you're going to make it for those live calls. With that said, I'm going to tell you about Scott LaPierre. I'm going to link the uh, webinar to the Growth Initiative down below. There's a there's kind of a master class that we've done, we recorded so you can get more of an insight into what actually takes place in the Growth Initiative. Scott LaPierre, I'm going to tell you about him. Scott LaPierre is a senior pastor, author, and popular conference speaker. He holds an MA in Biblical Studies from Liberty University. Scott and his wife, Katie, live in Washington State, and God has blessed them with nine children. You can learn more about Scott at his website, www.scottlapierre.org, and connect with him on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. And we will link all of those below so you can access them easily. Folks, thank you all so much for leaving the ratings and the reviews. And if you're watching this on YouTube, please don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Thank you for all the engagement that we get from you on YouTube. If you guys are able to share this, that would mean so much to Katie and myself. It's cool to say that this is what we do now. We are online making content. We love doing it. We hope it blesses you. And the way we're able to continue doing that is by you supporting us by simply just sharing our podcast, you know, liking, subscribing, sending it out on any social media platforms you have. That's what keeps this thing running. So thank you for doing that and enjoy today's episode. The Now That We're a Family Podcast. All right. Well, Pastor Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. I've been looking forward to this because as we were just saying before we started recording, uh, we've got somewhat of a somewhat of a history, which is fun. That's not always the case with the guests, uh, but it is with you. And so I'm really excited to reconnect and, uh, and to hear what you've got going on in your life. And actually to that, can you, in your own words, introduce yourself and Tell us about what you're currently doing. You know, are, are you married? Do you have kids? How many kids? Where do you live? What are you doing for work? What, what, what's happening in your life? So first, thanks a lot for having me here. Really glad to have this time with you and even just to be able to connect. You're, you're a friend and I'm going to share a little testimony I didn't share with you when we were catching up before this. I wanted to be a little bit of a uh, hopefully pleasant surprise for you as I, as I discuss my, my family and background. So my wife, Kate, and I grew up together in Northern California. We celebrate our 17th year anniversary in two days. And so I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I was an officer in the army, then became a school teacher. And that's when I became a Christian and really wanted to be in ministry. I wanted to tell people to open their Bibles versus telling kids to open their, their math books. And so then I was able to transition into ministry 
And I developed a close friendship with a family that homeschooled. And I was really uh, impressed with that, with what I witnessed there. And so kind of had my deal breakers, you know, like uh, a woman who will homeschool, a woman who feels comfortable being a pastor's wife and wants to let God kind of give as many kids as, as he wants. And then that, you know, pretty much removes 90 something percent of women. Right. <laughs> and so then, so Katie and I get married with that conviction and we had three kids and she was just like incredibly sick. I mean, she's going to the ER, super dehydrated and she's, uh, you know, we have people, this is in California, you know, we're having three kids. It's like, what are you crazy? Why would you have so many kids? And so we weren't getting a whole, uh, very good reception about having more kids. And so I ended up having a vasectomy and we thought that maybe this was God's way of kind of leading us into, into adoption, which had been on our hearts. And perhaps we'll, we'll do that in the future. And so I, I, in hindsight, and this isn't a commentary on every other relationship, but I felt like I um, compromised my, my leadership in my home, even because Katie was suffering, you know, people are telling me kind of in the language of first Peter three, seven, you know, how are you dwelling with your wife and understanding what she's can barely move off the couch and you got to take her to the hospital and she's getting filled with IVs and, and to replenish liquids. And it was like, you know what? Yeah. I mean, maybe if God wanted us having a bunch of kids, then <laughs> this would be a little more comfortable situation for her. And so I think it was the day I'm not exaggerating. The day I had my vasectomy was the first day that I talked to Jim Donald, who was kind of like the head elder here at Woodland Christian church. And we began a good friendship relationship that obviously led to me coming here to Woodland Christian Church in Washington. So we came here in 2010. Um, and so uh, I figure I'll spend my life here. I've been the senior teaching pastor here and we've grown and brought on another, another full-time pastor. And so, so the way you come into this is I'd been in Washington probably a couple months and we've, you know, we have our three kids and I'm only some months removed from having, having that vasectomy. And someone said, well, there's this family that plays music and they're going to be at this, at this church if you want to drive there to go see them. And so like a group of our church went there and I, I'm sure you guys have done a lot of performances. So I don't expect you to remember all of them, but we went there and Katie and I were sitting near the front and you guys played and your mother sang a song about kind of being the cap kind of like maybe the captain of a ship or something and some, you know, the song really well, and you can explain further. Cause I probably kind of butchered it there, but we were watching you guys. And I leaned over to Katie and it almost makes me emotional thinking about it. But I said, I, I want to have more children. I think we made a mistake. And it was really seeing your family up there that convicted me so greatly about the decision I'd made. And so we went and got a reversal and by God's grace it worked. Cause that might not always be the case for everyone. And so we're expecting our 10th child at next, um, the end of October. And so wow. I just want to thank you. I don't think I've had the opportunity to do that, but thank you for, you know, your family and their testimony. Cause I can't imagine my life without the other six with a seventh child on the way that God has given us. Um, and so every time we get pregnant, I thank the church for their commitment to help and support us when Katie gets pregnant, her pregnancies have not by God's grace been nearly as difficult here it's it's almost not even comparable I, she's thrown up maybe like two or three times over you know seven pregnancies versus the 15 times she was throwing up per day in wow. california but yeah it, it was seeing lisa up there and it was seeing your family up there and i i just felt like this we need to see what we can do about possibly letting the lord give us more kids if that's his will and so he did and so i was just glad to come on here and tell you tell you in person how much i appreciate you and your family and 
and that you, that seeing you guys that day was a was literally a life changing eternity changing you could say uh, mm-hmm. event for us so wow wow yeah, yeah. so Scott, so thanks for sharing that. Child, or go ahead, sorry, brother. Yes. Well, I was just gonna say thank you for sharing that story because yeah, I you know I had no idea, and it makes sense. You know, you know, you said thank you to me, and I'm the last person that deserves any thanks for that. You know, my <laughs> I'm thanking God first and foremost within my parents and their steadfast pursuit of parenting and of bringing up children. And I mean, if the timing's right, you know, you said 2010, and so. You know, if I think of my mindset there on stage, I love playing with my with my family, but I was probably just checking out all the girls in the audience. You know, my head wasn't towards <laughs> thinking about family ministry at the time. No, I'm teasing. I was probably on the hunt though for a for a good wife of integrity. But As I any appreciate a young man should be doing. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And and go to, and come to find out when you're the guy on stage playing guitar, you know, you get a nice little view of the congregation. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you pursue that instrument. You don't want to be in the back on drums where you can't yes, see anyone or something, yes. right? <laughs> yeah, I tease about that, but Katie, my wife still talks about how the first time she saw me was when I was 12 years old playing the guitar, you know, singing I'm an old cow hand, and she did have a crush on me, so <laughs> I'll never regret that. But no, I I really appreciate you sharing that story and and like you said, it's just so cool to think about what the Lord does through the body, through various encounters. And he, all these divine encounters and interactions. And like you said, the ramifications are not just physical here on this earth. We're talking eternal souls, you know, the souls that were brought image bearers that are now a part of his kingdom and his family and his work that by God's grace are here. And it started with just a kind of a vision almost in a lot being like, Hey, you know what? They, they had more kids. That can be a good thing. We were, you know, my parents were not doing it perfectly. They were doing it in an imperfect way, but you saw it being done. And it's really cool to hear that. And now, like you said, seven more image bearers, eternal souls that are here. And they're, I'm sure they're going to have a fruitful life, you know, before them of ministry and a family and work. So it's a powerful story. But yeah, you, you mentioned that almost your 10th child here is, is due. When's the due date? Uh, the end of October, but Katie just had a checkup yesterday. Everything's looking good, but the child's a little larger, and so it might might be a little earlier than that, but prob- probably October. Wow. Congratulations. Thank and you. so then can you tell us, you've got one coming very soon. What's your oldest now? What's Great. The age? Yep. So our oldest, Rhea, just turned 16 in July, and then they're about you know 18 months apart. After our ninth child, we had a few miscarriages. We've had you know, uh, two other miscarriages kind of throughout, but then when we had two in a row, we thought, you know, maybe after the ninth child, we thought maybe this is it. And we had this 10th child and things are, things look to be going very well. Mm. And Katie's 42. And so we don't know, um, how many more she might have. Maybe this is it. And again, but you know, Elisha, we never, it wasn't, people are like, Hey, did you have want a kid? want to have a lot of kids. It wasn't that we wanted to have a lot of kids. We just wanted to have what God wanted us to have. I mean, it could have been three, seven, could be 12, 10, whatever. Just wanted to get to the end of our lives and have God's fingerprints on our family that he built this family for us. And that's the conviction we had when we got married. But in California, you know, where people with four kids are looking weird. And I I hesitate to say that because I don't want to sound like I'm making excuses for my kind of abdication as the the husband or father head of my household. Uh, But that, that was kind of part of it. And so then coming here, there were a handful of large families. Um, you've been to our church. You guys have played at least once, maybe twice. And I don't know if you remember, but one time I kind of joked with you about some of the young ladies here and I'm a pastor. Hey, we can officiate something and get this taken care of. And you kind of joked and said something like, Hey, well, you know, I'm wear- I got a tie on. I don't normally wear a tie. So if we need to knock this out and 
Oh, that's funny. Appreciated your humor. Well, I will. Sh- I will say, and here we are digressing. You know, right, right from the get. <laughs> but because uh, I, I don't think I, I've got a clear recollection of that first time that you mentioned. Um, but I do have a very distinct memory of of meeting you at your church when we came to play there. And the reason it's so vivid in my mind is because when I first met you, you had. Y- I think you guys might have been living next to the church. Was there like like a parish situation parsonage. type? The parsonage, yeah. Um, and I think we were in the sanctuary, and you walked over maybe with a couple kids or your home kids, and you were shaking our hands, hey, hey, thanks so much for being here, and we were sound checking, and you were kind of sweating, and you're like, sorry, I just got done working out. And I and I remember, you know, I'm like 19 or 20 or whatever, and I was like, all right, I can respect this guy. You know, he's holding, <laughs> holding his young kids, doing a quick workout before the evening concert, and I was like, I like this guy. So that's my very first memory of of you and so it's fun to be reconnected here you know i wanted to hear you've you've written so much about marriage about finance and and numerous other things and of course as a pastor you speak to every area of life you know according to god's word because god's word has some quite the special way of speaking to every area of life um but i'm curious as to kind of your story you've mentioned it briefly that you were not brought up christian and as you have this vision of family, you talked about meeting the Donalds, you talked about meeting my my family. Um, how was your view of family? How, how did it shift? Because you said when you were, even when before that, that view of a big family, you already had a vision for family. And that that's not common. You know, people, I don't think necessarily get converted and then have that hierarchy, like what you said of a wife that's going to stay home with the kids, you know, you might maybe even mentioned homeschooling and, and, and so on. So what was that like for you? Cause it sounds like it was more than just kind of, I want to give my life to Jesus and then continue living, living, you know, with the status quo of, of culture. And so what was that your upbringing like first and foremost that shifted your world, sh- shaped your worldview and then how your thinking changed even before you met these big families. But you know, when you got saved. Men, the Growth Initiative is now open for enrollment. The Growth Initiative is a six-week live coaching program for men that are looking to grow in areas of parenthood, in areas of provision, in areas of health, in areas of financial freedom and well-being, really in areas of life that matter most to you. When I look at my life and I think of my faith, my marriage, my my parenting, my physical health, my financial growth and, and ability to provide for my family, I know that in order to see growth in those areas, I've got to have a systematic approach approach to it. So when I look at my ideals and my dreams, those are only good to me if I'm able to break down an actionable plan that I can then execute. And that's what the growth initiative is all about. Customizing your actionable plan to see growth in the areas of life that matter most to you. So if you're a Christian man and you're a husband and you're a father and you want to grow in those areas of life that I already referred to, hop on over. I'll link it below and you'll be able to find a timeline that works for you. Like I said, this is a live coaching program, six weeks long with live calls each week, along with tools and resources to help you up your game in those areas that matter most to you. And you can enroll in whatever time session, whatever time session, whatever session works for you time-wise. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for asking that. It's a, it's a blessing for me to be able to um, share this testimony. So I'm, I'm in my early twenties, just my brother and I growing up 
And my brother had be, and I was raised in the Catholic church and I'm a school teacher and coach at this time. And pretty, I want to get married. And pretty much what I want is just a gorgeous woman who makes a lot of money would be my two requirements at that time. And I'm not expecting her to be at home. I'm not too concerned about how she does with raising kids. Cause we're going, you know, with the public school system. And so we're going to be a double income family. And then I, my brother, had died of a drug overdose and he was 18 months younger than me and it was not anticipated because he was actually taking steroids and, and working out looked really muscular he had an addiction to pills and so then when he when he died there was some teachers at the school who went to the same church it was a calvary chapel and they said you know why don't you come to this ch church with us and talk to our pastor who lost his brother his brother had been murdered when he was about your age. And so I went there, I don't have any intention of, you know, being born again or saved. These aren't even terms in the Catholic church. I'm already assuming, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to heaven because good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. And, and, and so I'm assuming I'm on my way to my way to heaven. And so I just go to this church to speak to this pastor about his brother and hopefully receive some encouragement. And interestingly, Elisha, I also went because I thought it would bless my parents to hear that I was getting some help because they knew I was struggling. So I go to this church, I don't bring a Bible because I never brought a Bible to the Catholic church. And they hand me this Bible when I walk in and the pastor says, you know, open to this chapter. And you, I think you guys go to Calvary Chapel. Is that correct? Or you were when you were in Washington? My parents, right yep. about that? My parents okay. are a part of the Calvary Chapel. Yes. Okay. And so you're, you're familiar with their very verse by verse expositional preaching, which I'm super thankful I observed there because I've continued that trajectory unless I, you know, kind of do like a series on marriage or finances, where, which is where my books came from. But anyway, I'm primarily a verse by verse guy from what I saw there. And so I go in, you know, the pastor reads a verse and explains it, reads a verse and explained it. And really it's like this life-changing moment because it was the first time I felt like I can understand God's word. He's speaking to me through it. And in Catholicism, it's all, you know, go to the priest, go to Mary, go to saints kind of stuff. And I'm just listening to this pastor and it was just very powerful. I never even got to speak to him about my brother that Sunday. And I'm already looking forward to, to coming back the next Sunday. And I'm not even sure when I got to talk to him about my brother, but I was just so excited to be at church, be worshiping the Lord, hearing from him through the word. I heard the gospel soon after that. It bore witness. But kind of the sad thing about this was my parents did not think I'm going to leave the Catholic church. And so when I left the Catholic church, that was very hurtful to them. And to kind of give us some perspective, there was this one evening where my mom puts her chest, her head on my chest. And I still remember her vividly saying, we lost, she's crying. And she says, we lost one son and now we're losing the other mm, one. Wow. And then my, if my mom was sad, my dad was angry. And so they almost, they said things like, if anyone's going to leave, if anyone's not going to leave the Catholic church, we thought it would be you. We almost thought like maybe you'd become a priest someday or something. And so I'm trying to share the gospel with them and it's getting worse. Someone said I was like a bull in a China shop because every time I'm with my parents, all I want to talk about is basically them going to hell. And so it gets to the point where we barely have a relationship anymore. And I'm becoming super close with the pastor of that Calvary Chapel and his family. So they homeschooled. They had a very high view of children. And that's when I started having kind of this paradigm shift and it, cause it, you're really going to be influenced by one of two things, or hopefully both. You're going to be influenced by God's word and then what you experience or witness. And I had both. So I'm God's word. You know, you can read God's word, Psalm 127 about children. You can develop a high view of children and family, obviously from God's word, but it's something else to see it. You know, that can be very influential. And so for me, obviously it was seeing your family when we came to Washington, it was seeing, it was that family kind of brought me in. They said they were, that I was like a son to them. 
And that was really important, a, a huge blessing because I'd always been pretty close with my parents and now they were so upset with me. And so kind, kind of to make a long story short, I was, Katie and I reconnected, we grew up together and just, you know, interrupt me if I'm uh, talking too long or when you change direction here. But I, I was aware that my parents were probably going to move to Texas to live with some of the family they had there. And that was like heartbreaking to me because we're all in California together. And I called my mom and I just said, mom, I don't know how else to say this, but are you guys thinking of going to Texas? And she said, she didn't want to tell me, but obviously I was going to find out at some point. She said, we are because just things are so bad. You know, whenever we're together, all we do is fight and all you want to do is talk about religion. And they'd already sold their house. And I said, okay, mom, well, what about this? You guys are living in your fifth wheel. What if you just take a trip down here by Katie and me? And they really loved Katie. I said, don't you want to be around your grandparents or your grandchildren? And how, how difficult is it going to be to see them or see us? I'm your only son if you guys are in Texas. And she says, okay, well, let, and they'd already kind of got their hearts set on Texas. They're excited about it. And so I said, she said, okay, let me talk to your dad and I'll call you back. So a few hours later, mom calls me back and she says, okay, we're going to head down there to visit you guys. We're going to try this out. We just, we have one request. You can probably guess what the request is. Don't, don't talk about religion with us. So they head down to stay by Katie and me. And it was really sweet. It was reconnecting. It was like, we're finally family again, but every, every single encounter was like this, you know, white knuckling effort of not talking or sharing the gospel with my parents. And, but it was nice to have that relationship with them again. And they loved Katie and Katie loved them. And so then they wouldn't come to church with me, but where things started to move in a good direction was I said, okay, I've been invited to teach this home fellowship or this Bible study at this home fellowship. And I said, okay, what if you guys just come to this? Because then they wouldn't feel like they're, I guess, betraying Catholicism because they wouldn't come to church with me. So they come to this Bible study and I'm teaching it and it's filled with all these, you know, older people. They're listening to me say things and it was a real tense situation for them. It was like they couldn't resolve that they hated that I left the Catholic church, but they saw that I loved God's word, that I was teaching it in a way that people came to listen. And so they're trying to process both of these things. And so to kind of speed this up, they did end up leaving the Catholic church and coming to the church where I was brought on part-time as a, as a youth pastor. And I was able to baptize them there. Wow. And so that was like a super, super thrilling blessing. No, there were you know not many dry eyes that evening because so many people had been praying for my parents, knew all the testimony. The first time that they walked into that Bible study, I was leaving. I mean, that Bible study was filled with people who literally for you know, months or years had been praying for my parents' salvation. So when my parents come in, it's like this super electric moment where everyone's like, wow, you know, Scott's parents are actually at a Bible study he's teaching, you know? Wow. So I came up, I came up to Washington. They followed us up here. And so I'm sure they were at your, your concert that you played at our church. Uh, dad became a deacon in the church. He got Alzheimer's a few years ago and kind of like, he was right on the edge of that very last dark chapter. And my mom called me one night and dad had kind of been wandering off and we lived near my parents. And so we would see mom kind of following dad outside or see him walking up and down the sidewalk. There's a couple of times I'd even go on these long walks with mom where we're just kind of following dad. Hmm. And it was, th those were, you know, ni nice times with mom. Um, so mom's panicking this one night and she's, and I didn't, I couldn't even understand what she was saying. I thought either maybe dad grabbed a knife or a gun or he's wandered off and she can't find him. And he's kind of at the point where he's not really talking with us. And I ran down there 
and my uh, other associate pastor, full-time elder, Nathan, a close friend of mine, followed me and dad was on the floor and he had choked on some food and we delivered CPR. We weren't able to save him. Um, and that all the, you know, the paramedics came and worked on him for some time. And it was a real shocking moment, but in hindsight, Elijah, it seems like God protected us from that last pretty dark chapter that people can experience with Alzheimer's. And wow. so, um, you know, it was the last beautiful day. We hadn't really let dad hold our, our, um, ninth child at the time because we thought he might set Lydia on or set Lydia on the you know corner of a table or something and walk off. But we'd had lunch together and dinner together. Dad was at the table next to me and Lydia crawled across and he was able to hold her. Um, so yeah, it was a, it was a really sweet day. And, and then we ended up getting a place where my mom lives with us. You know, she was kind of lonely when dad dies. Well, now that she le- lives with 11 people, nine grandkids, 10th on the way, she's not lonely anymore. <laughs> mm. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. So, so many I mean, just that, that whole testimony and that whole story has so many powerful facts, you know, and you see God's providence and faithfulness throughout the whole thing. And that's really encouraging to hear. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that, you know, getting to having many children, you know, and then having not just your children, but then being able to have this restored relationship with your parents, this multi-generational, uh, togetherness, which is such a blessing and something that the Bible speaks highly of, right? It doesn't just talk about an individual or just one generation family it talks about this multi-generational family that is, that is so glorious. I'm curious as to what this looked like in a practical way. I kind of want to, you know, get practical here because as you've experienced, you've written about this. It's one thing to have this goal or this dream or a vision of having a big family, having relationships with grandparents and being able to be hospitable, be able to bless others. But there are some things that this requires, right? There are some practical things that this, that that requires finances, money being one of those things. And, and, you know, in your book about, about finances, which is a, which is a huge blessing, you share some of your story. And and I'm curious as to whether or not you can kind of share in, you know, this format, um, obviously the book's the best place to get all the info, but if you could kind of walk us through that journey with your wife, because you went from being a school teacher thinking you were going to marry somebody that was going to bring in a lot of money. You're going to be a dual income home, send your kids to public school. And then that shifted. And so then how did you change your life in a practical way to accommodate and facilitate that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So obviously, you know, if you're going to home, my, my desire in a wife changed where now I want a wife who's going to stay home, take care of our kids in our home. And I think Titus two, four, it's not to say a woman can never bring in any income. The Proverbs 31 wife was an industrious woman. You know, she buys and sells land. And I've gotten questions about that because I'm pretty big on wives being homemakers. And so how do you how do you reconcile that? Well, she clearly was able to invest or in her family, her husband, her kids, prioritize her family and home and husband and yet bring in this income or bring in this income without neglecting yes. those. And so if someone ever asked me, what could a wife do? Can she work at all? I would say a wife is is more than able to bring an income. My wife doesn't. That's my church takes care of us. That's another thing I could could talk about. But other women might be able to to do something like that because they uh, are not neglecting their their family in the process. And so if someone said, "How do you how do you get these together?" I would say, "Well, as long as a wife can still be fulfilling Titus two and those things that younger younger women are instructed by older women to do." and isn't neglecting her husband, children, and home in the process, then she's she's welcome to do those things. Um, and so when Katie and I got married, I really wanted that. 
in a wife. And so it did involve a lot of sacrifice and still does. You have, I'm not going to tell anyone that they're going to be able to pay off debt or save up money without sacrificing. I mean, there's um, many people can come into a lot of money and lose it very quickly simply because of the way that they live. And there's many people who might not make a lot of money, but can stretch it pretty far simply because of the way that they live. And now when we think about like Habakkuk 2.4 and the just shall live by faith, or we sing the hymn, trust God and obey. And I, I think we tend to think that, you know, trusting God or living by faith is when you're a missionary in a third world country and you kind of just sell all your possessions, and just head overseas. Well, no, there's ways for us to live by faith here uh, with our families. I mean, the number of people I've talked to who have said, you know, we want to have more kids, but we're not sure that we can afford them. Well, then you're, that's one place where the rubber meets the road and your faith is, is tested. And so it's interesting if you ever, if you ever publish a book, and sometimes I, I suspect with your, the ministry you have going on, um, you and Katie, that, that might be in your guys' future, or at least I hope it is. And if you deal with a publisher, and I've done both self-publishing and traditional publishing, the publisher is going to want to know what sets your book apart. And I'm getting to, getting to a point with this. What sets this finance or marriage book apart from every other finance or marriage book on the market? Because there are so many of them out there. Well, for me, I'm not joking. I think they looked and said, well, if this guy can survive on a single income with all these kids and be debt-free, then he probably knows something about finances. And so there was an amount of credibility. I guess I kind of, I hope that doesn't sound prideful, but I'm in all, in all seriousness, you know, why did Harvest House want to publish my finance book? I think it's because they thought I must have some credibility in, in this area. And a lot of that does, does mean, you know, we don't eat out a lot. We don't go to movies. We actually went to see Sound of Freedom, if I can put in a little plug for nice. that. <laughs> it's just because we wanted to support it and we believed in the message, but we're not going to be doing a lot of things that other families might do just because it's it, it's expensive. And so I remember I was talking to this woman one time who wanted to lose weight and she didn't seem, to, and I told her, I said, well, losing weight more than likely means being hungry. There's sacrifice involved or you're probably not going to lose weight. And it's kind of the same with saving or paying off debt that you're not going to be able to do it if you're not willing to sacrifice or go without certain things. And so, you know, we shop at Goodwill a lot. We've been had a lot of clothes given to us. We don't buy new vehicles. And that's a whole conversation. I think everyone's heard how much a vehicle depreciates when you drive it off the lot. You know, you've heard that a hundred times and I'll just say it a hundred one times. And so you can, you can buy new used vehicles or use new vehicles or however you want to look at that. You can buy a new vehicle that's used. It's just a few months or a year old and doesn't have any miles and save yourself a ton of money. So that's, those are decisions we have to, we have to make on a daily basis. Yeah. You know, you mentioned a few things that they might sound, um, simple or trite, but you said, you know, we don't go to movies often. We, we don't eat out often. And then of course you, you mentioned the, the used car and it's funny how you know, when you have a mindset of, of missing out on something, all you can see is what you're not getting. You're just blind, oftentimes blind to the blessing that, that the Lord has for you. And I think sometimes just like, you know, a fish doesn't know it's wet growing up this consumeristic society. I, I think there's even some things that I don't even realize some viewpoints some worldview views that I have, they're so influenced by this consumeristic society that says you deserve it all right now. You know, you deserve everything right now. And I think there's a, a number of lies there because one, like the Bible's clear, you know, on, on practical, if a man doesn't work, neither shall he eat, you know, just kind of this cause and effect of like, no, you, you get the, the laborers worthy of his work, you know, like of, of his pay. And so that's what you get the compensation for. 
But then in addition to that, when you look at maybe the, 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 the vision of a vacation, you know, the advertisement for a credit card, I just saw this the other day, you know, it, was, it popped up and it was a couple, you know, in their thirties on a beach somewhere, drinking cocktails, laying in the sun. Instead, you don't have to wait to live your best life now, you know, kind of, that was the line. And I said, you know, what's so funny is that there are numerous lies there because if I just went and got the vacation on credit, I wouldn't be the person that actually worked towards earning that. And so I don't get to grow as a person. I don't get to grow as an individual. I don't get to grow in my marriage because the thing itself is not going to change who you are, right? You're still going to be who you are. I can go on a date with my wife tonight, you know, that maybe we couldn't afford. We're still going to have the same marriage, right? That's, that's not the problem right there. The, the lack of the thing is not the problem. And I think the lie in not waiting or in getting impatient and, you know, really leveraging or not even leveraging, succumbing to credit in the wrong ways and spending more than you make, it's not just the interest. Like, sure, yeah, you you go backwards, you have, you're in this hole of debt, but you actually are ripping yourself off from the opportunity of growing as a person and also getting creative as a family. Because, it's not like you guys have gone all these years not having fun family experiences, not having fun family memories. And in fact, the home in my mind growing up in a big family and then now having a small family of my own, a young family, the home can be the most joyous place. But if you're always looking to eat out, to go out to movies, to go on vacations, to go on trips, you can really miss on what the Lord has in store for the beauty of the home. So I don't know if that's something that you've experienced because yeah, you can, you can talk about like needing to lose weight means you're going to be hungry. It's like, yeah, but it's also way better to, to be healthy. It's way better to have the energy and the vitality that comes from being maybe at a healthier weight. And likewise, it is more rewarding and joyous to be financially fit. You know, it's so, so how was that for you looking at, like you said, the sacrifice being real, but then also seeing the blessing that you're getting in it? Yeah, you this, I just exhibited incredible self-control because there's about a hundred times I wanted to pipe in and say amen or disagree with what you were saying because I thought, thought it was so good. Yeah, we're talking the same language. I'm actually got my manuscript to my book in case I wanted to reference it over here on one screen and I'm looking at the part that says stay home. There's a whole section on staying home if you want to save money. But you're right. Staying home doesn't have to be a sacrifice. Staying home can be a wonderful blessing because what's most important to us? Is it our marriage? Who's our best friend? Is it our spouse? And who who do we love the most or want to be with the most? Is it our children? Because if that's the case, then being home is going to be, like you said, a, a wonderful gift. And we understand what it's like. A lot of families go in 100 different directions. Some of our kids are getting older. They're going out with other friends. And so I'm trying to capture some of our family worship in the evening and have have all of our kids present and how difficult that's becoming as, as they're getting older. When I was a school teacher, I kind of disagreed with this philosophy that you give kids gifts. I almost never gave kids gifts, even like a pencil or something, because I wanted them to work. And I'm not saying that they had to work super hard or do a ton, but they're not going to value something that they don't work for. You give a kid a backpack that he didn't work for, that backpack could get trashed within a few weeks. You give a kid a backpack after he works hard for it, and I guarantee he's going to work, he's going to take very good care of it. And that's the same with us, like my kids, you know, I almost hope they don't listen to this, but because we're encouraging them to be entrepreneurial, which I know is something you guys grew up with and with the coffee shop. And I, I think one of the first articles I read that you wrote, and I hope I don't forget the direction I was going, but you talked about this animosity, jokingly, you felt toward people 
that didn't want to come in and sit down and enjoy the coffee shop environment, but are just going to drive through and you're just like slandering them and how horrible these people are, you know? And then it's like, now that we're a family, now that I have a family, I see the joy of just being able to drive through, you know, and pick up that coffee. So that, that's when I first thought, you've got a gift for writing, brother. And I mean that sincerely. I told my wife, Katie, that and I do hope you end up, end up writing something um, someday. So the, regarding wealthy, wealthiness and a fish being wet, as Americans, we don't know where, you know, the fish doesn't know he's wet. Well, Americans don't know they're wealthy. And I've got a whole section in my book detailing just how wealthy we are. And we're not just the wealthiest people throughout human history. We're the wealthiest people throughout the world. And so people say, well, what about when you factor in cost of living? You can factor in cost of living and we're still two to 10 times wealthier than any place else in the world. And so, I mean, that's why I try to counsel people that they typically don't have an income problem. They have spending problems. And if they can just spend their money differently, then they'll find that their money goes that much further. But because we live in America, we don't see how rich we are. I mean, if we went overseas for even a short period of time and came back, we'd be like, I can't believe how much money I make. You know, I can't believe how, how well I'm doing. And so, and so re regarding that and kind of combining it with the discussion of rewards, it's not to say you can't eat out. It's not to say you can't take that vacation. But what if you take that vacation or what if you go sit on that beach after as a family, you've paid off this much money, these two credit cards, this, these college loans, or this debt, or your house. And so when we were saving money as a family, someone's back, Katie made kind of a barometer with the degrees of how much money had been saved. And I really noticed a difference with our kids where they were excited when every time we'd save a little bit more money toward that goal. And so one of the things that I tell people is make sure you involve your kids, make sure they know what you're doing, make sure they're part of that journey with you, because as soon as they are, well, then they're going to understand why you don't want to pay for this for them. And they might even be glad that you're not so they can see that that barometer, you know, increase. And so that's kind of the when wanting our kids to be entrepreneurial, I kind of forgot the direction I was going earlier, but we're we have kids doing landscaping. We have we have kids that are um, needing purchases for their businesses. And this is kind of what I hope my kids don't hear. I'm more than happy to buy all this stuff for them. But most of the time I have them pitching some amount of money because I know how much more they're going to value that lawnmower, that weed eater, that thing that they, that they, that computer laptop that they need for their business. Do, do I really need the extra few hundred dollars that they pay for that? No, I don't. But as soon as they put that money and they value, and then they feel like, there's a sense of ownership then, and they're part of that business that they're that they're growing there. Um, the one thing I do, one section I do have in my book that I encourage people to spend money is actually on their home. I'm not saying tons of money, and I'm not saying have a mansion, but invest the amount of money into your home that makes your home an enjoyable place where you want to be. That is a really like you go to the you mentioned the beach. Well, you go to the beach and then you come back to your home. You don't keep that forever. But when you invest in your home, this is where you live, play, eat, sleep. Most of your relationships, all the hospitality takes place there. So that's a super good investment that lasts a lot. Take that however many thousands of dollars for that vacation. Imagine you put that into your home, then you're going to enjoy it for, for years to come. And so and so with hospitality, one of the other things, because you, you mentioned that, that I'll just add, hospitality has way more to do with your... Uh, interaction with people and affection for them than it does to do with your home. There's a contrast two families. We were friends with a family who had us over there. They'd actually been missionaries in the Canes. They went to Thailand and they were on furlough and they were back in the U S 
And when we went to their house, it wasn't super nice. I mean, it wasn't the tidiest or cleanest even. But when you came in, they were interested in you. They were attentive to you. And so you they were great at hospitality. We knew another family that had a really nice house, but it was almost like, you know, don't touch, don't move. You're going to, you might break something, knock something over. And so you're kind of sitting like this on the couch and even they had the nicer house, but it didn't feel as hospitable. Mm -hmm. And so hospitality just has way more to do with the way that we treat the people that come into our homes. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you covered so many things there that I think are so helpful and insightful. Uh, and, but I want to back up cause you, you mentioned, you know, finance with your, with your kiddos and passing on kind of a vision for them. And, you know, this is something that it does seem like it is such a challenge to not live in any area of life in somewhat of a reaction to what our upbringing was, right? Um, we see something that was done by our parents, whether in a good way or in a poor way, and we think, I want to do it just like that, or I want to do it not like that at all. Uh, and I'm curious, you mentioned getting your kids involved, giving them a vision. And this is something that I I ponder a lot, right? Because the, the Bible's clear about, you know, the, the righteous man leaving his children's children and inheritance, there being this generational wealth. And, and of course, the, the wealth of faith and of God's word, be that, you know, bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, that's like the greatest thing ever. But it also speaks of this money, this physical, this, this physical wealth. And, and yet I also want to instill into my kids that the work ethic that you're speaking of, this level of sobriety around finances. And I'm curious as to how you are doing that in a practical way, because you you use the term ownership, but you also talk a lot in your book about stewardship, you know, and kind of contrasting those things. Because I know in my brain, those are very distinct things. And I think for my, this is just me speaking from my opinion, and I, I'm really curious to hear your perspective. A lot of the, the rugged individualistic nature of the West is heavily influenced people when it comes to money. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps, do it yourself, take ownership of your decisions. And while that can produce some positive fruit, I found that perspective of stewardship is more powerful because it's not ours in the first place. Every single thing, every single breath, every single particle in the, in the world is belongs to our King belongs to God. And it's the same with money. So I'm curious as to how you articulate that. I mean, I know you talk about it in your book, but how does that look in your home when you're talking to your kids and as you're teaching these principles? Yeah, well, that was, you mentioned a relationship between stewardship and ownership, and there's a sense in which they're actually more like polar opposites because a steward doesn't own anything, right? Mm -hmm. And the Bible is filled with discussions of stewardships. Many of Jesus's parables dealt with stewardships. And that, that's one of the things I said to, when the Harvest House is like, how does your finance book stand out from other ones? I said, well, I know you can go find a lot of finance books that give practical application and advice. And I'm not saying my book lacks that, but my book primarily strives to deal with the heart and help people recognize that this life and the finances we have, it's a stewardship. And so I do deal with that regularly throughout the book, because what's the point of helping people make a bunch of money if they're selfish, ungodly individuals? You know, you want to see people be gain a lot of wealth, but then be generous, godly people with it who support God's kingdom, support missionaries. And so if someone said, do you want to see people gain money? I'm like, yeah, I want to see God's people. I want to see godly people gain money. There's nobody that's going to be furthering God's kingdom with money more than, than strong, mature Christians. And so I, so anyway, I'll back up a, a little bit to get a little momentum into something. When we talk, when I start to talk about or preach on finances at my church, you know, so I'm saying I'm a verse by verse expositional guy. 
And then occasionally I'll see a need in my church and then I, I strive to address that. And that's how I end up preaching on marriage or trials and suffering. You know, we had a, a young boy in our church that drowned. So then we deliver, I deliver and we're a family church, you know, we're not a mega church. So this affects the entire church when that, when that child drowned. And so then we have sermons on, on suffering and trials to equip the church. Well, I saw the need to equip the church on finances and perhaps that doesn't sound super spiritual. You know, I'm going to come to church and I want to hear about prayer, love, forgiveness, justification. And I love all those things, but really it's a question of what, what decides whether something is spiritual or not? Well, God's word does. And if it's in God's word, it's spiritual by nature. That's essentially what determines whether something is spiritual. And so, and I would even argue that the more frequently something occurs in scripture, the more spiritual it is. Well, there's actually few things that occur in scripture as frequently as finances. And so to me, finances are an incredibly spiritual aspect of our lives or our Christian lives. And so I wanted to equip our equip our church to deal with that. And then to recognize that this is a stewardship is a paradigm shift for many people because suddenly your money isn't your money. And that can be a big help when you're you know you should give to the church and you don't want to give your money. Well, now you're giving God's money. And it also causes you to examine purchases better. I think it was Randy Alcorn, who's obviously been, been a major author in this area and dealt considerably with finances and having a heavenly eternal perspective. I probably quote him more than anyone else in my, in my book. And so I love his resources. And he said that every single cent you spend is a spiritual decision. So, so much so does he see finances as spiritual that you can't even spend anything without it being a spiritual decision, right? Like maybe the shirt you put on isn't spiritual, or maybe what you eat isn't spiritual, but then every, every dollar you spend is spiritual to him. And I, and I really agreed with that. And now, now suddenly, if you have a view of stewardship, you're not spending or wasting your money, you're spending or wasting God's money. And then the way you spend money is moral. You know, it's going to discourage the guy from going to the bar. It's going to discourage, hopefully, someone from going to the club or the bad movie that they they shouldn't see or attend. And so I think it's a really important, and everything's a stewardship. I mean, family, children, marriage, you, you said it super well, the time we have, how many days God's given us, the air we breathe, everything really is a stewardship. We don't own any of it. It all belongs to the Lord. He wants us to use it. I mean, if he's redeemed us, if he's bought us, not if, but because he has, he owns us completely. He owns everything about us. And so because of that, we don't really own anything. We're expected to be living in a way that pleases and honors him and handle our finances appropriately. And, and so some people say, you know, unfortunately, I'm not like anti-King James, but famously the King James said the love of money, or I think it says money is the root of all evil. It might not even say the love of money, but it's the love of money that's the problem. Money itself is amoral. And we, we kind of live in this world that wants to take amoral things like guns and make them seem immoral or bad or make money seem bad. Well, guns, cars, money, these are all resources that are amoral, that are used morally or, or immorally in, in our lives. And so when people obtain considerable amounts of wealth, if they're godly individuals, you don't really frequently see a change in the standard of living, but there's an immense change in the standard of, of giving for these people. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Thanks for speaking to that. And, you know, you, you mentioned, and you talk about this in your book as well, you have a little bit of a less common perspective, even on debt. And, and so I, I'm curious if we can't kind of head that direction because it's something that most Americans will deal with at some point in their life. You know, people write in and say, I need help getting out of, you know, hundreds of thousands of student loans, you know, or of consumer debt um, or, or, or mortgages, you know, or, or car payments. Like, 
you're thinking, boy, not all debt seems to be created equally here. And so I'm wondering if you can speak to that. Um, And then I'll just say this too, because it's something I wanted to get to. They're kind of different. But, you know, you talk a lot about Matthew 25, Luke 16, the talents, the seeds, stewardship there, and how in a lot of ways it's a little contrary to... Well, it's contrary to socialism for one, but it's it's contrary to even I think here in the West, even in a capitalistic society, we'll think about uh, finances. You know the way God talks about um, who he who he rewards and whatnot. So if if we could kind of take it that direction and uh, and and let us know your thoughts on that, that would be I'd love to hear that. Sure. Yeah, I was listening to this interview one time with John MacArthur, and he said this woman came up to him and criticized him and said, "John, you talk like you know everything. Um, you're right about everything. Is how you preach or talk." And he's, and she said, do you think you're wrong about anything? And he said, I know I'm wrong about lots of things. And she said, well, why don't you change? And he said, because I don't know the things that I'm wrong about. And I mean, I thought that's like super true. So I'm wrong about a lot of things. I just, even if I knew them, then I would change, right? Yes. I'm probably not going to find out on this side of heaven. Well, one thing I was wrong about that I was confronted about was debt. And so I'm still not a fan of most debt. I definitely, you, I like the way you said that not all debts created equal. And I'll probably have to try to steal that and I might forget that I'm quoting you, but use that in a sermon or something, but I think that's well said. So I'm super opposed to credit card debt, have credit cards to build credit, but pay them off, super opposed, you know, buy vehicles with cash, definitely don't put vacations on credit cards. You don't need, you don't need to be going into debt for, for, um, for food, for clothing, for those things. We'll get to, we'll get to real estate, a mortgage, or perhaps even investing in just a second. So I'll just briefly tell you my journey. So my journey was I, if I made it overly simple, I probably made debt sound like a sin. And I've preached that. And I actually had to go back and try to fix that with my church. So I'm basically preaching all debt's bad. You shouldn't have debt. And if people listen, they'd probably walk away feeling like any debt, all debt is a sin, not just consumer debt. So I turned my, so I want Michael Ferris to endorse my book. And he agreed to, and he starts reading it. And he kind of confronts me with my view of debt. I like Michael. I have immense respect for him. Thankful for all he's done, you know, with HSLDA for the homeschooling community. So he's challenging me with some of these verses. And he he kind of makes the point like, you know, when that person wants to buy the $300,000 home and they save up for it to buy it with cash, now that home costs $600,000 and they're never going to get ahead. They're always kind of chasing the carrot sort of thing. So there was that, but most, and then Harvest House also, when I turned in my manuscript to them, they pushed back. And they've been great. It was interesting, Elisha. I thought they were going to push back against my marriage book, you know, because it's so conservative. I self-published that. And then they saw it and it, by God's grace, had done, you know, surprisingly well. They want to pick it up. And I'm like, I'm not sure they're going to take it the way I have it because it's it's big on submission, headship, complementarianism, you know, wives submitting to their husbands. And they took all that, no problem whatsoever. And then guess what they pushed back on? They pushed back on my view of debt. And the editor of the book, who I really respect, a good guy, Steve Miller, he sends me these verses. So I'm getting pushback from Michael Ferris and from Harvest House at the same time. And I had to take a look and understand that the ver- primary verses on debt, like let's say Proverbs 22.7, that the debtor is servant to the lender, that's in wisdom literature. That's different than law literature. There's a difference between wisdom and law. And even when we read God's word, just a little tool for any of your listeners. We don't read everything the same. Narratives, poet, poetry, um, epistles, they have tone. They have, you don't, and so you don't read wisdom literature like it's law literature. And I was taking wisdom literature about debt and I was making it law like it's black and white, it's bad or sinful if you have debt. When in reality, the wisdom literature just means you need to use wisdom or be wise regarding debt. 
And so that was kind of a whole paradigm shift for me where I had to go back to my church. And I even knew that there were some people there that probably don't completely agree with this new view I have and are, are still of the persuasion that all debt is bad under any situation. And I kind of, I don't know if I'd say I asked for permission. I said, hey, I feel like I have a conscience issue here that I have led the church wrongly, not in a major issue, you know, not regarding the gospel or deity of Christ, but I'd like an opportunity to teach some Sunday schools. Because here's the thing, Elisha, I was afraid that maybe there's people that passed on a house because they heard me preach that you can't have debt. And now that house that was $250,000 is $500,000 and, they, and they're renting and trying to get save up all that money and they're never going to do it. And so, and Michael Ferris talked about, I think, locking in like an interest rate or locking in a mortgage on a property that's like 250,000 that now it costs a million dollars some years later, you know? And so you, you kind of see where I'm going with this. So I go back to my church and I teach that debt is a wisdom issue and there are ways that it can be used appropriately. And I even think not just for your primary home, but even for investments. And so some people say, well, that's a risk. Well, everything's a risk. I mean, unless you just want CDs with 0.001% interest, if you buy a stock or a mutual fund, a collection of stocks, you invest your money in the stock market. You're taking risk. To avoid risk is to have incredibly little return and probably not even keep up with interest rates or inflations. inflation. And so my journey has been one where now I see the, the benefit of debt in certain circumstances and that I would definitely support people depending on their debt to income ratio purchasing mortgages or even purchasing, you know, investment properties to ser serve as Airbnbs or rent, you know, what's, how great is it when you buy a house and someone's renting it and then they're paying off the property you own with their rent. That's a super high, and you're building incredible equity. I mean, there's a reason many people have become rich, you know, with it, with this approach. If, if people are interested, um, you know, rich dad, poor dad, bigger pockets, these are resources that deal with that uh, more if that's attractive to people. So that's kind of, kind of my, been my journey. Now we have worked off to pay off, uh, I think Katie's credit card debt. We paid off our, our mortgage on our home. So we own it free and clear. So I still like the idea of paying off of paying off everything you can, hmm. um, except for perhaps your mortgage. And so anyway, I guess that's, that's kind of where we're at. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. And I'm curious as to how this looked in your home when you were aggressively trying to pay down this debt. Cause I know that there were seasons where my parents were doing the exact same thing, where my in-laws were doing the exact same thing. And yet both of them would, would bring concern to overemphasizing that at the detriment of your family, right? Bringing extra stress into your home hmm. under the, under the premise of we're trying to free, free up ourselves financially. And of course, you know, this people are going to do this imperfectly. You're always learning. But I think about the dad that, you know, is working seven days a week, not tucking his kids into bed, not eating any meals with them in the name of getting ahead or getting out of debt you know, and, and at what point did you find the balance of, Hey, we're making progress here. You know, we're, we're making gains here, but I'm also, you know, my, my kids, they're only going to be seven one time. You know, my son's only gonna be seven one time. They're only gonna be nine one time. This, the, the discipleship is also happening real time right now. And, and because you're somebody that values both those things, you know, you don't just fixate on the financial side of life and, and say, Hey, I'll, I'll clock back into being a dad and, six years when I'm fully out of debt, we don't, we can't do that. So what was this like for you finding that balance? If, if that's the right word to use, you know, of being yes, extreme, 
but then also not neglecting the calling of the home. Yeah, you said that super well, Elijah. And the way that I say it is we tend to, I mean, the Christian life is like one of two ditches we're trying to avoid, you know, and it's like we're in one ditch. And then when we get out of that ditch, we just, we almost go too far, too extreme. So now we're trying to get, so first we're spending too much. That's the debt we're in. We're just accumulating debt. Well, then we're going to pay off debt. We're going to work, like you said, 70 hours, neglect our health, have a heart attack before we're 40. So now we find ourselves in the other ditch. And this is the case with so many things, right? It's the difference between legalism and being liberal right? You know, you can be so legalistic. We're seeing all these attacks, which would be a whole other conversation with the shiny, happy people documentary with all the attacks on um, Bill Gothard and the, and the Duggars and that they were, and I don't know enough to say whether they were legalistic or not. We actually liked a lot of what we saw from the Duggars, but anyway, but then the other ditch is just being liberal and dressing immodestly or watching trash, things like that. What's the same financially or with work? And so for us, I asked Katie, she was, she was unhealthy. I don't mean physically. I mean, she was unhealthy, like mentally, emotionally with me working too much. And I said, what do you need? And by that, I just mean like I wasn't the help that she needed and she was struggling. And even like a point where maybe two years ago, and the leadership knows about this, and I even shared it with the church where Katie's like, you know, what do you think about trying to go full-time speaking and being a speaker and author? Because this pastor thing is really difficult on us right now. And I prayed about it. And I just feel like God wants me to be a pastor. I don't feel like he wants me to be a full-time speaker and author. Not, not that I could even make it in that world necessarily anyway, because it's a tough, tough world financially. Um, you know, with 10, nine kids and a 10th on the way, my heart goes out to Israel Wayne or some of these other guys trying to cut that. But I prayed about it. And I feel like God wanted me to remain a pastor, which is a joy to me. And I asked Katie, I said, what do you need to be healthy? And she said, I need you to take one full day off and I need you to be done at five every day. And I said, I can do that. And I've stuck with that. And so what that means is I haven't been pumping out books like I used to. I can't neglect, I don't want to neglect my merit in this order. I don't want to neglect my wife. I don't want to neglect my kids. I don't want to neglect my church. And so authoring fits in after those. And there hasn't been a whole lot of room for authoring, even though I'm using the manuscripts from my sermons for those books. Now it's going to look different for everyone. You need to, I would encourage husbands who are working, there's no amount of debt that's worth losing your marriage or your your kids over. Now, to be honest, most of the time when guys are overworking themselves, I think it's because work has become an idol. It's not necessarily because they want to pay off so much debt, but it's because they might enjoy that world or the promotion or the projects or the income more than they enjoy their family, which is something they need to repent of. And so I would say to any husbands listening to this, they should ask their wives, do you feel like I'm spending enough time with my family? Do you feel like I'm spending enough, enough time with you? That was, a, that was the conversation that I had with Katie and she shared those answers. I took him, took him back to the elders and said, hey, this is what my wife says that she needs to be healthy and happy. We went to camp as a church and we go to two camps, beach camp and family camp. Katie went to beach camp, but she didn't really want to go to family camp. She drove up a couple of days. Now you rewind seven years ago and I'm pushing Katie and telling her, you know, no, you're the pastor's wife. You need to be there. The church expects you to be there. And of course I was putting the church above my wife and nobody was upset about Katie not being there. I'm sure they would have loved if she had been there, but that was just part of trying to keep her healthy. So I would encourage husbands and fathers to have those conversations. That means turning my phone off, putting it away when we're at dinner together. You, you go through the same stuff, brother. You got a young growing family. You're trying to run the, these different ministries in your life. And frequently being a good father and husband means not saying no to bad stuff. It means saying no to good stuff. Does that make sense? You, yeah, we need to say no to bad stuff, but we need to say no to good stuff. There's a guy that called me today. One of, he doesn't go to, I don't know where he lives. And I had to say no to him 
about a about something he asked me about. And I said, I'm sorry, brother, I don't have the bandwidth in my life. And to do that is going to involve neglecting my family. And so there's lots of times that you have to say no to good things to, for, to, find, to have God's best in your life. Mm, yeah, thanks for speaking to that, because whether it's uh, an effort to get out of debt or if it's just chasing chasing a carrot, something that you and your wife feel so united on saying, hey, we want to be, you know, financially independent by age, whatever, fill in the blank, 40, you know, or whatever, whatever it is, all of a sudden you can make that the thing, the idol, the, the only thing that seems important to you at the detriment of your marriage, of your home, of the ministry that God has right before you in your local community. And, and I think of the proverb, you probably know the exact reference, but that there is a man that maketh himself rich yet is poor, mm-hmm. but there is a man that maketh himself poor, but, but is rich. And, and I think of that often in regards to being, being a father, of course, I, I, yes, I want to be, I want to flourish financially. I want my children's children to have an inheritance. I want to be able to walk free from debt and, and financial freedoms there, but I do not want to be that rich man that make themselves poor. You know, I do not want to be that guy. And, and I mean, that's far more common than not, you know, that's far more common in those people that have gained the worldly, worldly wealth. So, you know, I, I'd love to hear some closing thoughts, just kind of as mindsets around this. And then can you tell our listeners where they can find you? I'll link your website. We've already talked about a couple of your books, but is it just the two books or do you have more books that you've written? What, what's that, what's that like on that front? Yeah, sure. I was talking about guys working too much or workaholism. And I've got a book called Work and Rest God's Way that I wrote terribly convicted about my failure to be obeying the things that are written I'm writing about, you know, and that's wow. when uh, it was kind of like having, I knew I needed to make some changes in my life. I've got a book. So my brand's kind of God's way and during trials, God's way, your finances, God's way. And people can find all those books on Amazon. Uh, they can go to my website, scottlapierre.org. You'll put the link to that in the show notes. And that's kind of the hub, all the spokes go out from there to my YouTube channel with my messages or you find my books or my speaking page. Uh, and so the, if I was get, had any closing thoughts, Elijah, it, it would be this. As, as kids are growing up in the public school system, they're not learning about finances. They're definitely not learning about marriage or any of the things we want them to learn. So the joy of homeschooling and the joy of, of being a family is being able to impart these wonderful truths to our kids. So that's why I highly encourage parents to involve their kids in these things. I know the right hand's not supposed to know what the left hand is doing. But the one time, maybe, I don't know if I'd say you can disobey that verse, would be when you tell your kids, this is how much we're giving to the church. We're cutting this check, or we're giving to these missionaries. Because if our kids don't see us giving, they're not going to develop hearts to give themselves, right? And so try as, as homeschooling families, which I'm guessing is the majority of your listeners, to be investing in your kids and imparting these, these truths to them. And then if any listeners go to my website, scholarpair.org, I've got a free gift for them there. It's called Seven Biblical Insights. It's a short read, you know, kind of some excerpts from my marriage book. And it's a gift to them. I hope it would be a blessing to strengthen their marriage and point them toward Christ. And so just thanks a lot for having me on here today, Elijah. This is a, the, a blessing. And I really appreciate you and Katie and all you guys are doing. And, and so I wish you were a little closer, you know, you moved, moved further away, but thanks for having me on and God bless you and your listeners. Mm, thank you, Scott. Yeah. God bless you. And thank you so much for the work that you've done and that you continue to do and blessings to you and your family. Mm-hmm.